miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on our podcast. On point tonight, we talked to Joe Newberger about the legitimacy of genealogy and whether or not you could actually use this evidence in a courtroom here in Canada. It might be popular in the United States, but of course we've got the charter. And would this violate privacy rights? Would it stand up in a court of law? We talked to a restaurant owner who is speaking out, not just begging the uh, premier to do help, but help do things like lower insurance costs. But most of all, they want to show, be shown data to support these draconian measures that are threatening to put him and many, many others out of business. And we'll talk about escalation of bullying tactics by China this week. Basically, the Chinese ambassador to Canada is telling Canadians living abroad in Hong Kong, well, you know, your safety and health could be put at risk if you continue sending Hong Kong asylum seekers to Canada. We'll talk about that threat and much, much more. Let's get to it. And I hate doing this, my friends. I honestly, I hate this. Effective Monday morning at 12.01 a.m., York Region will move into modified stage two for a period of 28 days. My friends, this was not an easy decision to make. And I know this will be very, very difficult for many people to hear. Say goodbye to more jobs and hello to more data-free shutdowns and uh, make no mistake, we are not in this together. Alex Pearson with you on this Friday, October 16th. You know, it's starting to feel like Groundhog Day around here. It was just uh, last Friday when we were telling you about Peel, Ottawa and Toronto rolling back to stage two rules. And now the economic virus spreads to York region. And it could go to Halton. Not quite yet, though. But unlike last Friday's announcement, the uh, province says this one comes into effect Monday, which if the situation so dire, why are we waiting? But Ford explained, you know, restaurants and businesses need to get ready for it and uh, be able to get rid of as much things like food as possible, because when they shut down in the three regions last week with no notice, you had restaurants that had spent, you know, millions of dollars in food with the impression they'd be open for business for the weekend and then had to watch all of that go down the drain. You know, just one more hit to them. And, you know, we're told the draconian measures are needed because the data tells us these experts that the spread of uh, COVID is getting worse. But, you know, we just have their word. We haven't actually been shown data to prove that these drastic actions are justified because, you know, those in charge have lost control of things like tracing and testing. And I don't, I don't envy the premier. He's got a very tough job. It's a balancing act, but he does owe it to us. And certainly, certainly to those that he's shutting down some transparency because it is the businesses that are going to pay the price. And why should they pay the price? Because those in charge didn't do their jobs. I relate to these small business owners. Our family has a small business. And I know, you know, what it is to, to meet a payroll and see where your next paycheck's coming from and, 
and making sure that, that uh, you keep things moving forward. So yeah, does it bother me? It, it really bothers me more than anything uh, at all. And yes, you're right. The decision's mine. I take full responsibility. But at the end of the day, I got to make the decision. I got to listen to the, the health experts. And But we're going to try to keep this balance going with the economy. It's not easy. I'll tell you that. It is not easy. But it has to be driven by data. And if the cases are surging, then put it out there. And as much as the premier is pleading with people, you know, do your part, mask up, don't be going out, you know, wash your hands, uh, help these businesses. What is the plan long term? Like, what are we doing here? And if cases are going up in long term care, have we finally got that iron ring in place? Because it doesn't sound like it. There are now 72 outbreaks right across the province. And why wouldn't we wait to see if cases go down in the three zones already shut down before we start adding into the destruction? Because the plan cannot just be, you know, shutting businesses down. I mean, it's not enough to say we're going to get through this together because we are not. And businesses, and I hear from them all the time, they need stability and they need some kind of direction so that they can roll with the bunches. And instead, they're just having their lives turned upside down while you've got others that just do whatever they like. Because there are different rules, clearly, for different people. And it's not just unfair, it is creating a very big divide of us versus them. I'll give you an example. Uh, I was reading uh, that a couple of top execs at Costco, they, they fly into Canada on their private jet from the United States back in August 25th, and they get granted uh, special exemptions from the mandatory 14-day quarantine that everyone else has to follow. And then for the next three days, they blitz through all the hotspots, Quebec, Ontario, and Alberta, because, oh, they've got to open some new stores. And on that same day, there was another billionaire CEO and some more execs from a different American company also landed in Toronto, also got this special exemption. They didn't have to go into quarantine like every other person would have to. And they were deemed somehow essential workers. But why? What is so special about them that they don't have to follow the rules that we all have to? And Bill Blair was asked about this. How did these people get granted special privileges? And of course, he threw the frontline workers at Border Services under the bus saying, oops, they made a mistake. Did they? I don't know. I'm not sure if uh, calls were made. They shouldn't have been given special privileges. I mean, it's one thing for those helping transport goods, and there are a lot of them, be it a truck driver or those who have businesses that they've got to fly back and forth. There are those who have businesses in the U.S. that do need to go with little you know, interruption. We need them to supply our chains. But it is very clear if you have the means and the connections, the rules can be broken because none of these execs that waltzed in from a country that has so many cases were essential business. Going to a store opening is lovely and lovely for the CEO to go, but it is not essential during a pandemic. Not when millions of Canadians have sacrificed so much, be it, you know, lockdown, businesses shut down, or not even being allowed to be with your loved one in their final dying moments. I mean, give me a break. So we either have rules or we don't. 
And when a, you know, a few well-connected people are seen to be getting special treatment, then those of us being asked to make all the sacrifices are just going to stop sacrificing. And we'll talk to one restaurant owner a little bit later who has penned a plea to the premier on behalf of other restaurants. And they want to see the data behind these shutdowns. And they are begging for help. They're not asking for handouts, but they're asking for help measures like, you know, protections from predatorial insurance companies that have jack rates by as much as 60% while reducing coverage from restaurants. It's absolutely crazy what's going on. Or why not stop the government run liquor and beer stores from gouging them, selling them liquor at inflated prices of up to 15%? How is that fair? That These are things that the premier can help them with. I mean, they did their part spending thousands on protection and putting in stuff to their restaurant and, you know, shields and all the rest of it. They moved their restaurants outdoor, they cut their traffic, and now they're feeling completely vilified because a few bad apples, you know, brought in cases. So we'll talk about that. But we do have a very busy show. We're going to talk to that restaurant owner. By the way, he's been in business for 50 years and it's uh, slipping away now. We'll get into the legalities of this genealogy match to Calvin Hooper, because it wasn't actually his DNA that made him the match, but uh, someone related to him. So the one question that I've been asking myself since uh, we heard about this is, would this stand up in court? It might it might play very well in the United States, but we are not the United States. So does it violate charter rights? Probably. You know, there are privacy rights here. We'll also talk about China's ambassador to Canada because he basically issued a threat to the 300,000 Canadians living in Hong Kong. He said that, you know, if Canada keeps taking these Hong Kong asylum seekers, it could jeopardize the health and safety of them. Really? You're in this country and you give that? It's not even a veiled threat. It's a threat. And as far as I'm concerned, he should be given his walking papers. Well, it was a new technology widely used in the United States, but it's not so big and new here. And this is what police have linked them to the killer of Christine Jessup. And as I understand it, it was a genealogy kit that someone linked to Calvin Hoover, ordered, gave their DNA. And from that, police were able to you know, scan a broad range of family trees, dig through the lineage, then match relationships history, social media, and other links that would ultimately then connect her, uh, him to the Jessup family and why they believe he is the real killer. And police said, you know, if he were alive, Calvin Hoover would now be charged with first-degree murder. But if the DNA is not a direct link, would it even stand up in a court of law here in this country? Let us ask Joe Newberger, of course, our global news legal expert on this thing. And we were kind of going back and forth on this, Joe, because I would have to think... Um, you know, while it's a totally different system in the United States where this is not new, they can use this stuff, they can go in once you've donated. I have to think there are different rules unless I haven't seen the fine print on this as like charter rights, privacy rights with this stand up in court. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. So this was a very unique situation. So they were able to create these family lineage trees from a related DNA sample that was in one of these um, testing labs in the United States. So if, let's say, assume that uh, Calvin uh, Hoover was alive, then there could be a match, because in this case, uh, Mr. Hoover had a DNA sample with the Center for Forensic Science, and they could compare that to the sample swab, but they would still need to then execute a warrant 
And in order to do that, they'd have to draft out an information as to how they were able to get the information about the lineage connecting it to Mr. Hoover in the first place. And one could allege that although the United States is not subject to our charter rights, there is a right of privacy into that DNA. However, it's somebody else's DNA. So this is completely uncharted waters because it could be that, because you know, do you have a privacy interest in some uh, molecule in your DNA that may be related to a family member? So uh, there would be charter and privacy considerations in a case like this if it were to go forward. And uh, some of these companies in the United States have their own privacy policies, which are issues in the United States as to when it's being used for a forensic criminal investigation. And what would the process have been? I mean, this was, um, you know, I know a few of the members of the team of the cold case squad who went down there and, and did this. What kind of paperwork would they need for that? Would they need some kind of warrant? No, actually, they could just request assistance from one of the labs in the United States, and uh, the lab would decide whether they want to assist or not, and they can do it voluntarily. So there's nothing that stops the police from a sample from a victim of a crime to go down to another lab to process it. It's when you want to obtain a sample related to the suspect that then the charter considerations come into play and whether it's a state actor involved and if it is like the police, how are they obtaining that sample and what privacy and constitutional rights are at play. Um, But they wouldn't need any paperwork per se to go to the lab in the U.S. Okay. And so this is, I mean, this is a a great scientific uh, tool. I mean, because anybody, you know, I could go out and decide I want to see who my long lost Aunt Sally was from who knows where. It's great. Um, You send that kid off. If that ends up netting someone who has some kind of past uh, relationship to me, you know, through blood, um, are there not privacy rights? I mean, if I've signed on the dotted line and I sign away my privacy to get that genealogy kit, can't someone who maybe gets netted by that, uh, you know, connected to some crime, say, well, well, I didn't agree to give up that sample? I absolutely agree with you. That's where this interesting uh, analysis comes in, because let's say this is a relative of yours. So you're, sh- you're sharing a similar genetic pattern. Right. And there's going to be common molecules that are similar, and you have a privacy interest in your genetic makeup. And just because we're relatives and we share that, I would assert that there is some form of a privacy right because that person who would have been identified, let's say, as a suspect, did not waive their rights. But then it, then it becomes really interesting. How far do you go as to privacy rights about somebody else's bodily sample? The other view could be if I'm sending my sample off and I, I sign certain privacy rights related to me, that may ne- necessarily give standing to some relative of mine uh, because they have a similar DNA pattern. It's something that will get litigated at some point, um, and it's a, a very interesting issue. And I think the argument would be more robust in Canada necessarily mm-hmm. than the United States. Certainly, yeah. I mean, look, I don't want the government having my data, so therefore I don't have any interest in these genealogy kits. And it's not because I think I might be connected to some terrible crime. I just don't want the government to have my DNA. Um, yeah. But I have to think that at some point people um, you know, should pause and think, okay, what could this be used for? And like I said, it's used widely in the United States, but it is starting to obviously get used here in this country. And certainly, if you can solve a crime 36 years later, like the Christine Jessup, assuming, Joe, that this is in fact DNA matched to this, you know, Calvin Hoover, uh, it's going to start being used a lot more widely. Absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it was very effective in this particular case. And just so happens because the the suspect who we now fairly conclusively is the individual who did it, they had a DNA sample with uh, the Center for Forensic Science because through a criminal case before they had to give up a sample. So then you're able to have, uh, you know, a comparison between the sample from Ms. Jessup's clothing uh, and and from this individual. But, you know, people as a society, we have to think, oh, it's great. I'm related to some, you know, Duke of wherever, you know, 300 years ago. But we're not thinking about how our DNA, when we give it to a private company and a private lab, may be used in the future. And right now it's used for crime investigation. What else is it used for? And, of course, we don't have knowledge specifically about the protocols and guidelines that are in place to make sure that there's no transference or, or any contamination of DNA and what mistakes can be made that way. We don't have access to those labs. So I think right. we all have to be very careful because if you remember a long time ago, the Center for Forensic Science went through a very significant review of their protocols because of contamination with samples. And they've done an outstanding job of now having very robust guidelines and policies and producing results where we're not having cross-contamination between samples. That said, I don't know what's going on in the United States, and we all have to think about, you know, what it is when we send our sample away in the mail to some company uh, in the United States or in some other country. And so I think this brings in privacy considerations that are much more broader than this particular investigation, although I know everybody's happy that it's been solved. Well, yeah, assuming that there's no one else out there and there are no other victims of this person, I mean, now they can obviously go back and try to connect other cold cases and see if there were any other um, criminal behaviors. I would I would assume that the police investigation will look into whether he told anybody if anyone else was connected to this at the time uh, it happened. But, you know, DNA has changed everything. It was Holly Jones, of course, the brutal murder of that child. Um, you know, it was DNA where they asked the neighborhood um, men, uh, please provide a, you know, a sample of your DNA voluntarily. And it was the group of men who said no. And I think there were five of six of them who said no, no, thanks. And that's who they ended up zeroing in on and watching them. And then ultimately, uh, you know, got zeroed in on Michael Breer and then picked a piece of garbage out that he dumped behind and matched the DNA that way. Um, So there are ways of doing it. I just think the genealogy way of doing it is uh, certainly kind of not as foolproof. No, it's not. And again, you know, when they got a throwaway sample in that case and were able to to do the analysis, you know, we're talking about a Canadian facility, again, where I'm emphasizing we know that there's very robust policies and guidelines with respect to how they go about their forensic work. We don't know about that in the United States. And so, you know, in addition to that, I think just overall there's privacy interest because that person became a suspect. Uh, they they uh, asserted their right to not surrender a consent sample, and the police then investigated and mm-hmm. got a throwaway sample where there was no privacy. Good investigative work. But when you go to a lab that has a DNA from any, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, they're not sending it away thinking they're going to be investigated. They're not given their right uh, and, and, you know, what it is to give a consent sample. So that's where the issue is going to come in the future because I think this might get used more and more now to look at the cold cases, as you say, and trying to come to other determinations with other victims that haven't been solved. Yeah. Hell of a turn, though. Hell of a turn. And uh, at least good really? to see for certainly for uh, Guy Paul Moran as well. Um, you know, his true, true exoneration in this case. Joe, yeah. appreciate you talking to me. Have a terrific weekend. You as well. Take care, Alex. 
Thank you very much. Joan Uberger there joining us with some insight onto that because uh, we went back and forth on that and I thought, mm, might not stand up in court, but uh, I have a feeling we're going to get a test case at some point. Well, you heard the premier there. We got new restri restrictions. And of course, with these restrictions come even more job loss. And last Friday, when Peel, Toronto and Ottawa got shut down, when they shut down gyms, clubs, things like indoor dining, it meant the loss of tens of thousands of jobs that very day. And that's going to be repeated today over the weekend. And if these decisions were backed with data, maybe it could be justified. But we know those char in charge have lost control of tracing. So we don't have clear data. Otherwise, we'd be seeing it. My next guest is a restaurant owner who represents a group of eateries across southern Ontario, and he penned a very passionate plea to the premier telling him that they need help, that they're not getting, and they feel they're very, being very vilified as an industry and paying the price for a few bad apples. Rick Hugglestone joins me now. He is the owner of Mulligan's Pub. I thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is a an institution, really. I mean, this is a pub that's been around for 50 years. So you're not new to this business. Um, you know what you're doing. And, and, and where are you now? Are you going to be able to survive this second hit? Well, we're, we're always optimistic that we can give it our best shot. And I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. So I certainly don't want to, I, I don't want to throw in the towel yet. But I'm advocating on behalf of my industry because I think someone needs to stand up and find out some answers to some important questions. And that's really what that article was about. And that's what um, myself and my group are trying to do. It's not that you don't see COVID as not a threat. It's not that you, uh, you know, are an anti-masker and you're just against all, all of the, the, the COVID stuff. It, it's that you want transparency. You want to see what is driving the policy. Correct. I, I, I'm very serious about, and I understand the COVID is a, I mean, it's the, it's the concern of a lifetime right now. It's the worst thing that could happen to us, I guess, since 1918 and that flu. But uh, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of, of some of the health measures put in place. I'm just wondering why all the policies aren't uniform and widespread for all industries. It seems kind of counterintuitive to me to be contact tracing in one industry while you have a bunch of other industries not mandated to contact trace or even report. Yeah, and you also raise, I think, some other interesting issues because one thing that the Premier kept saying, and I know, look, he's in a damned if he does, damned if he doesn't situation. It's not an easy balancing act. He is a businessman who does understand the struggles that businesses go through. But, you know, when he says we will be there to help. And we've heard that now for months, certainly from the federal government, which botched almost every aid package outside of the CERB. Um, certainly businesses didn't get the help they need. But, you know, he said we will be there to help. And yet we hear, you know, major um, insurance hikes, uh, you know, that have been hit against restaurant more than 60 percent uh, and you get lower coverage or you know, you point out in your column, um, you know, the LCBO sells you booze that you're allowed to now sell to the public, but you have to get booze at inflated prices. Those are things that, that, that the premier could help with. These are policies and, and, and papers that we've authored and we've sent to the premier and his ministers on a number of occasions. We've also sent it to the federal government. And I don't want to be the guy here bashing Premier Ford every day. Um, I'm sure he's in a difficult position because this is a tough thing. But I think he needs to take a stronger stance 
and administer his policies effectively in order to to help us get through. And I understand that he says he's on our side, although, to be quite honest, when you look at what the provincial government has done for small businesses or even, in particular, my industry, the restaurant industry, I can't think of any that they've done. So we're kind of left high and dry to fend for ourselves, and yet it seems, um, and no disrespect to the media, but every time a COVID case is mentioned, they have to throw in a restaurant somehow. So I, it's, it's troubling. Well, I mean, look, the data that we have been shown is that 40% of the cases came out of restaurants, but then you have to have the context. And oftentimes we don't get the context. And it's it comes out to about 20 restaurants out of seven or 8,000 that have broken the law. So I think a lot of people in your industry say, why aren't they going after the bad apples instead of, you know, throwing everybody, you know, under the bus to pay that penalty. But the bottom line is you're shut down. Uh, you know, you're you're almost on the border between Halton and Peel. And Halton's not shut down yet, but, you not know, yet. you're not yet. But the cases are going up. Well, well, the cases are going up very slightly. Um, I'm 800 yards away from Oakville. So I'm in Mississauga and I'm 800 yards away from Oakville. So literally across the street, you can go to a bar. I don't mm-hmm. want to inhibit their ability to procure business. And I'm sure they're doing things properly as well. So, but again, this gets back to this standard and this idea that I, I keep hearing politicians always say this virus has no boundaries, yet they're imposing them. Um, I believe Lawrence Lowe, the Peel Health Medical Officer, came out last week and said that Restaurants and bars are not the cause of this, but because we're adjacent to Toronto, we feel that Toronto people in Toronto will come to Peel, so we've shut it down. And I'm pretty sure that that's the same argument that the people in York are getting right now, that they're adjacent to Toronto, so shut it down. And really, you're correct in your assumption that this is a very small number of bars. If indeed it did come from the bars, well then shut those bad apples down. I don't think anyone in our industry would hesitate to agree with that position, but shutting everyone down, and it only seems, it's, what is it, bars, restaurants, gyms, um, fitness clubs, that kind of thing. Uh, it seems Yeah, there's no targeted. question. Well, yeah, it, it, but it's targeted, but there are a lot of them, and, and um, you know, those that survive the first hit, you know, tell me they won't survive the second hit. And what frustrates, I think, yeah. a lot of people is that there are, are different rules for different people. You know, you can fly into Toronto Pearson Airport, get off a plane with COVID, and they just assume or tell you to go into quarantine and hope that you'll follow the laws. Or I don't know if you read in the uh, paper, you know, you've got these Costco execs who fly into the country to go visit their stores and they get exemptions from the United States or from the Canadian government. And, um, you know, th- there are different rules for different people. And and I see that as very unfair to those who are being basically told, not asked, told to sacrifice everything. Correct. And, uh, you know, but I think part of that problem, too, is the policymakers, um, they propose guidelines, not actual mandates, bylaws or laws. So those guidelines aren't always the same. It depends on your, it appears to be anyways, your level of business. One can make an argument that uh, Costco executives could uh, take a different route if they wanted to and call all their stores to see what was going on instead of coming up. 
Um, we either have a policy in place or we don't. Bottom line, though, is you're in the thick of it. You and uh, thousands of other restaurant owners are, are in the thick of it through no fault of your own. It's got to be nope. uh, not just frustrating, but very personal. It's very personal. And, and I think when you spoke of the insurance industries, I'll give you a prime example. And I don't mind telling anyone who will listen that I normally paid around $8,000 a year for business insurance. I have never had a claim. Um, I'm now paying twenty. Jeez. And you have no customers. And I have no customers, and I have reduced coverage. I, so I, I don't know why I've never heard anyone provincially, federally, make a statement about insurance. I'd love to hear from uh, Premier Ford on the insurance industry and why this is going on. I could cite other examples. I have a, a friend uh, who's in the group. He owns a bar in Markham. He was paying around 10000 a year, and now they're quoting him forty two. Jeez. I don't know how well, you keep yeah. the business going at half capacity. Now we're closed. Now he's closed too as of Sunday. And you've got to pay these exorbitant insurance bills. It doesn't seem to make sense. And all of these policies are well and good that the the federal and provincial governments are putting in place. They're trying. I don't dispute that. But I need, you know, we need help and we need it now. And putting all these policies in place with no actual, I don't see it on the websites. It's not up yet. The relief packages aren't available, but you still have to pay all your, you know, your rent, your hydro, your heat for this month and you have no business. So it's kind of an odd uh, dichotomy. Are you going to survive this? I, I really don't know that answer because I don't know whether it's really 28 days or five months until we open again. I, it's, and that is another question that I think should be put out into the mainstream public about now that they've closed York and it begins on Monday, does that just add another 28 days to Peel, Ottawa, and Toronto? Has anyone asked that question? Yeah. I don't know. Well, the the questions get asked, but we don't uh, get much beyond the talking points. But nonetheless, business can't run on instability. It's uh, it's not how you can conduct a good business. So I definitely no. will... Uh, follow up on that hard. and are you doing takeout by the way yeah we're doing takeout rick hugglestone is his name mulligan's pub is the name of the business in mississauga and they are open for takeout so if you can support a small business uh, that is one you can choose from well the prime minister was asked for his reaction about the increased uh, bullying tactics of china and there is no question china's wrapping up uh, ramping up these tactics with the world, but uh, also here in Canada. And earlier this week, President Xi Jinping told his nation's troops to begin preparing for war as tensions with Taiwan intensify. And then China's ambassador to Ottawa was asked to explain the comments. And he directed uh, that that the United States was very dangerous in undermining uh, the U.S. or their China's national security. And then Kong Pei Wu turned his ire to Canada, accusing us of being an accomplice to the United States because we detained Meng Wanzhou, Meng Wanzhou, and then warned Canada that if we keep taking Hong Kong asylum seekers that he calls violent criminals, it could jeopardize the health and safety of 300,000 Canadians living in the region. Sound like a threat to you? Does to me. Jonathan Miller is a senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute, also an expert in East Asian security. Good to have you, Jonathan. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be on. 
So without question, I think this week, I mean, China has been escalating its rhetoric for for some time now. And it it appears now that Ottawa, Justin Trudeau, has finally started to notice it because the language on both sides has changed. And so does that further embolden China to continue getting harsher? Yeah, I think that China is going to stand sort of unapologetically in, in the way that it does. So I think that From the Canadian perspective, I think what has been a challenge, um, not just this year, but frankly over the past several years, has been understanding um, the Chinese as a potential adversary and some of the real challenges that we face in that relationship. But frankly, it's not just Canada that faces them. And I think this is the the difficulty of looking at the, you know, for the past year or two, uh, the issues that are are most um, affecting Canadians, the the issue of the two Michaels, of course, that are detained, and the Mm -hmm. issue of Meng Wanzhou. Um, it's a part of a bigger and more interlinked package of, of challenges that China presents um, to a, a number of like-minded democracies. So, for example, on hostage diplomacy, Canada is not the only one who's involved in this. Um, countries such as Japan, Australia, some of our European partners have also had similar incidents. So I think we need to look at this in a much more um, long-term and strategic lens and how we can work with other countries that, frankly, um, are, are also facing a more emboldened China. Right. It's certainly Taiwan. I mean, we, we abandoned Hong Kong. Hong Kong uh, was allowed to fall. Um, uh, really, uh, the Western nations didn't seem to do much. Um, but Taiwan is now under direct threat uh, of China. And there's clearly a, an escalation of tension in that region. Where do you see that going? Yeah, so I think uh, Xi has made some uh, in, in more irresponsible comments on Taiwan, you know, threatening the potential for conflict. I think that um, from China's perspective, uh, it sees this, uh, obviously, as you referenced, Hong Kong uh, is, is key in the mind of, of the Chinese leadership and what they feel has been Western interference there. But I think also China sees uh, challenges on a lot of its borders, and a lot of this has been Chinese-induced, uh, some of its coercive Um, activities in the South China Sea, uh, in Southeast Asia, but also in the East China Sea vis-a-vis Japan. There's a a territorial conflict between India and China. Uh, So uh, China has uh, been acting in in many unpositive ways around its neighbors. So I think Taiwan is just one more example of this. Um, I think the challenge has been that uh, Taiwan, and I think the pandemic has shown this actually more than anything, has been one of the most successful uh, democracies and partners in that region. Uh, yeah. Not only was it able to uh, cope with this uh, pandemic much better than China, but but frankly better than many other countries in that region. So I think this underscores the need to really uh, shore up that support and uh, cooperation with Taiwan. And so bringing it back closer to home, um, we've certainly seen this, uh, a few comments by the, the um, Chinese ambassador to Canada, Kong Pai Wu, um, over the last couple of days. I mean, there's no question when when he is, you know, telling Canada that we ha- should stop bringing in what he calls violent criminals, you know, it could jeopardize the health and, health and safety of 300,000 Canadians. Um, would you, if you were advising the government, be telling Canadians might be a good time to come home? Because it, it, I don't see how you can see that as anything but a threat. Yeah, well, I think it, whether it's implicit or explicit, I think even when the ambassador was asked whether it's the threat, he said you can basically take it as you like, um, especially with the context of the, of the Michaels. And I think it's important to note, too, that we've been here before. Uh, there was a situation 
a uh, number of years before where the, the Garrets were uh, were taken and yeah. held for about two years on the border of North near North Korea. So uh, this is not new tactics from the Chinese. So we've been here before, and I think it's very alarming. I think, uh, you know, I think that would be another uh, sort of uh, drastic move by the Chinese if they were to start detaining Canadians in Hong Kong. But I think at this point, the number one priority for a Canadian prime minister or foreign minister is to protect the, the safety and security of Canadians um, and those who are abroad as well. So I think that has to be factored into the equation is that this has become a significant challenge to uh, Canadian citizens that are living uh, in Hong Kong right now. And and obviously, Meng Wanzhou is at the heart of this. They want her back and uh, think that they can use her as a negotiating tool or use Canadians as a negotiating tool or our farmers or, or whichever else, um, you know, hurt they can inflict on Canada. They want her released. They, they've made it clear in very unclear language that they were, you know, they would do a swap. Uh, but it puts this government, which I think has been very weak need on China, very naive on China in a, in a tough spot. But, you know, I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's no question uh, their language has in the last week or two seemingly gotten a lot tougher on China. Maybe they either read the polling or realized that Canadians overtly uh, do not support a relationship with China right now. Yeah, I think that they've realized a lot of their missteps. And, you know, I would agree that the the last few years, the, the, the policy on China has been woefully inadequate. And I, I do commend them for, for slowly, even though they've been late to the, the game of kind of taking some stronger steps on that. But what I would urge them to do is um, less uh, focus the priority on China itself. I think that in many ways gives China too much credit. And this mm-hmm. has been a problem, I think, with Canadian foreign policy in that region for so long is we have a lot of friends and like-minded partners. Obviously, we talked about Taiwan, but there's Japan, there's South Korea, there's countries in Southeast Asia, Australia, of course, um, mm-hmm. that, that espouse uh, similar values and interests to Canada. So we have to make our Asia policy less about one country, especially a country that is not necessarily aligned with our interests, and more about those countries uh, who, are, who are much more aligned with us. And and should the prime minister, I mean, in my mind, he should be given his walking papers. I mean, for him to be on this, uh, you know, in this country on Canadian soil, um, you know, being this emboldened to me is, uh, is is just something that, you know, go home. Well, it it, it defies the kind of uh, the logic of his post, too. I mean, if you think of what an ambassador is supposed to do, uh, it's supposed to uh, facilitate uh, relations between the, the country that you're that you're residing in. So I think that he's he's directly going against that that wish. I mean, I think there's a bigger game going on, now, not just in in Canada's uh, the, the Chinese post in Canada, but in Chinese missions overseas. Is that really the focus for a lot of these senior diplomats? Is what that means back home? So basically, what the reception is back home. They've almost lost complete touch of that sort of, as you said, the diplomacy element, which is so crucial. I mean, if you're not there to to further in 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 some capacity, even during difficult times, the relationship between Canada and China, then it seems that your 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 role is sort of, uh, you know, more or less. And so, in your in your um, expertise, what does it all mean for the Michaels? I mean, the the tougher we get, and if we continue taking Hong Kong asylum seekers, uh, you know, does that put them further in jeopardy? I think it's challenging. I, you know, frankly, I don't think that these uh, some of these other actions are really going to impact the Michaels. I mean, I, I do think that China has unfortunately taken advantage of the pandemic situation to withhold consular access. Yeah. Finally, we were able to have consular access through video link. 
I don't know if any of these actions outside of Meng Wanzhou will really have any impact. I mean, I think that the Chinese very much see this as a tit for tat. They, they, they refuse to publicly link it, but we all know that these sort of arbitrary detentions were linked to Meng Wanzhou's detention. So I think these other things will, um, will put pressure on Canada in other ways, but I don't think that 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 will have a, an impact on the Michaels. Unfortunately, as much as I'd love to see them returned as well, I don't see a resolution to that happening until something is, um, is, is, has moved on the Meng Wanzhou file. And from the Chinese perspective, anyway. Yeah, and that could take a very long time. Jonathan, I appreciate your insight into this. Thanks for joining. Thank you. That's Jonathan Miller with the uh, McDonald Laurier Institute. That is your podcast for uh, tonight. Join us, of course, live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point here on Global News Radio.